The Gospel of Mark does not begin with a story of Jesus' birth, but with the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the first chapter. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of our Lord. Once again, thank you to all of you for sharing um, last month in those Who is Jesus surveys. Your participation and feedback and random little things like that really helps me in these sermon series, as well as giving me some some other foundations for what y'all are thinking when I'm writing the usual weekly one-off. Because preaching is a collaborative effort, not just one person spouting off for 15 minutes. And for this collaboration, one of the things I asked about was music that informs your understandings of Jesus. Music, even for those who don't sing, is deeply ingrained into our memories, into our beings, and it's one of the last things to go. Have you ever been to a nursing home around Christmas for caroling? There's always that one person who has no idea what's going on, where they are, and maybe they aren't really even sure anymore who they are. But you start singing something like White Christmas, and suddenly they're crooning like Bing Crosby. Music is central to what it means to be human. And it's part of our celebrations and our remembrances. So in answer to that question about music that informs you, uh, here's what some of you said. Christian radio, particularly the station K-Love, was mentioned by several. Um, I had never heard of it probably because the only contemporary Christian music I listen to is from queer artists that I find on Spotify. Uh, Some of you mentioned pop music or musicals uh, like Bridge Over Troubled Water, Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar, He's My Brother, and Mary Did You Know. Service music like The Lamb of God and Hosanna in the Highest was named. Uh, Some people just said uplifting music, both in hymns and our service music, however you define uplifting. And then some of the specific hymns named include Joy to the World, Beautiful Savior, Canticle of the Turning, which is one of my faves, Prepare the Royal Highway, and someone just said old hymns. At Post and Kill, we all looked at one person when that was said. Music is also one of the things that helps us learn, like the alphabet. 
I still need to sing the little song in my head anytime I need to alphabetize. Anybody else have to sing the alphabet song to help them too? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I knew it wasn't just me. And since it's so vital to our learning, we're going to focus today on some of Jesus' teachings. Because some of the questions that you gave at the end of that survey include, how does Jesus find the love in his heart to forgive everyone? What did he mean when he said we are called to be perfect? And it's always bothered me that Jesus seems to rebuke Mary when she came to see him, when the commandment tells us to honor our mother and father. So without singing my own responses, Jesus talks a lot about forgiveness. It's something that's vitally important to our relationships and to our communities. When asked by Peter in Matthew 18 how many times one ought to forgive, Peter goes, as many as seven times? Jesus responds, no, 77 or 70 times seven. Jesus recognizes that forgiveness is a process, not a one-and-done item on a checklist. When someone really hurts us, forgiveness might not come easy, and it takes time. Seventy-seven times isn't some tongue-in-cheek response, but an acknowledgement that forgiveness often needs repeating over and 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 over again until and even after it takes root in our hearts. Sometimes forgiveness needs to happen daily in some way and channeled into love that you never thought was possible. Like Azim Kamisa, whose 20-year-old son Tariq was murdered by 14-year-old Tony. Azim says, when I got the phone call saying that Tariq was dead, I kind of left my body because the pain was too much to bear. It was like a nuclear bomb going off inside my heart there was no solace to be found in my mind, and so, as a Sufi Muslim, I turned to my faith. For the next few weeks, I survived through prayer and was quickly given the blessing of forgiveness, reaching the conclusion there were victims at both ends of the gun. You do forgiveness for yourself because it moves you on. The fact that it can also heal the perpetrator is the icing on the cake. Azim has said in other interviews that he needs to forgive Tony Daly. Part of that, he also wrote a letter to the governor asking for Tony's sentence to be commuted. And when Tony was released from prison after 25 years, Azim kept his promise of giving Tony a job at the Tariq Kamisa Foundation, which had been co-founded in the mid-1990s by Azim and Tony's grandfather, Pless. How did Jesus find it in his heart to forgive? My best guess is through prayer. Human Jesus prayed, and I find something reassuring in that. Because as Christians, we profess that Jesus was fully human and fully God all at the same time. And made in God's image and human ourselves, we are to pray for forgiveness, to give it and to receive it, like God who became human with us. The Holy One speaks to us in prayer bears with us our burdens, and directs us in caring for the pains that we carry. Now, when it comes to perfection, if you remember our Lenten book study from this past year, Amy Jill Levine covers 
some of this in her chapter on practicing piety in the book, The Sermon on the Mount, A Beginner's Guide to the Kingdom of Heaven. Around Matthew 5, 43 to 48, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. AJ has some great lines about not stooping to the nasty levels of others and her mother's 1960s instructions, you should always be a lady. But as AJ goes on to tell us, the Greek verb used by Matthew's writer is not an imperative, be perfect, but a future indicative. Jesus states that if we follow his instructions, we will be perfect. So less a command and more a statement. We aren't to be God, but God sets the standard for us. There's no higher standard than God. And Jesus doesn't ask of his followers anything he does not ask of himself. In a warning about translations, she says that what the NRSV translates as be perfect is teleos a form of the word telos, meaning complete. Jesus is calling us to perfection with its, Jesus is not, I did this first service too, Jesus is not calling us to perfection with its modern connotation of never doing anything wrong or incomplete. Because, you know, that would just make us all neurotic. Rather, we keep working on ourselves, following God's example, following Jesus, helping our neighbors. Perfection or completion is the goal, and therefore it's a process. Forgiveness is a process. Perfection is a process. It's all a process. And for the one or two Trekkies who might be here, um, I think of this, this pursuit of perfection kind of like the Borg and their pursuit, their search for perfection. And for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, we're just moving on. We may never be perfect in this life, but we persevere. And we know that we are already blessed as salt and light for the world. And to start wrapping this up a little bit, yes, the commandments tell us to honor our parents. And when it comes to that question of Jesus rebuking, especially his mother Mary, we get some examples of Jesus rebuking his mom in Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 8 when he says, Who is my mother? And my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. As we talked about last week in Luke 2, Jesus kind of plays the precocious little snot, answering his parents, Child! Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you with a, well, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And there's also in John 2, the wedding at Cana, when the wine has run out, his mother tells him this and he says, woman, what concern is that to me and to you? Now, in these you know, scriptural examples, one of these, Jesus is a child, a child nearing first century adulthood, but still a child, learning, exploring, and testing boundaries like any healthy 12-year-old. 
And in the others, he is an adult, nearing the start of or already into his public ministry. I think with the word rebuke, we tend to hear it and get this kind of like shame knot in our stomachs. Because, you know, we, we think of being rebuked as, as something kind of like there's something wrong with us. But rebuking isn't saying there's something wrong with you. It means more of a correcting, a correction of behavior or language. Like we might correct or write the behavior and words of another. Like maybe um, for those of you who are parents, did you ever like gently rebuke or correct one of your children to, to make them behave better? No, you never told your kids to do better, Pat, really? <laughs> I wonder if Jesus is necessarily being disrespectful towards his parents, not honoring them according to the commandments. Or let's put this another way. Do you think it is possible to correct someone's behavior or language in a way that is respectful and honors their position of authority? Here's a question some of you may not want to admit happens. How many of you have adult children or grandchildren who have ever said something to you like, um, we don't say things like that anymore, or please don't talk like that in my home? It might not feel great to have your kid tell you to watch what you say, but again, that doesn't automatically mean it's rude, disrespectful, or dishonoring. In that kind of instance, how something is said is more important than what is said when it comes to keeping the commandment to honor your parents. Also, I think if your kid can say something to you like that without fear of retribution, like you screaming at them or saying, don't tell me what I can and cannot say, I think that means that there's a lot of respect back and forth between you and your kids. Because if they can say, please don't do that, and you can ex you know, receive that, that means they're honoring you as one who raised them, cared for them, taught them the ways of the world, and as someone capable of still adjusting or adapting to the ways the world has changed around you and them. Is that making sense? Okay. All right, now apologies for this being a rather long sermon. By word count, it is one of my longest ever. But Jesus does have a lot to teach us. And we learn our whole lives long through music, through reading, through conversations with one another. We learn and we seek forgiveness for ourselves and others. We seek to be perfect as God is perfect. And we learn from one another generation to generation, older and younger. Thanks be to the God who has made us lifelong learners. Amen.